The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. When I think about the way that we decorate our houses, I recognize that our houses are all full of symbols. There are symbols all over our houses, pictures of the past, the present, or the future, reality. Uh, That time you took your family to Disneyland, that loved one who has passed away. Or, Or maybe it's more simple than that. It's the pride that you feel at looking at that A plus paper that sits on the refrigerator. Or Perhaps it's those clothes that you can't quite throw away because one day you'll be as skinny as you once were when you were 20. But these are all mementos. They're symbols of a reality that holds a special significance in your hearts. You decorate and you fill your house with these things because you want to remember, you want to think about these realities, you want to be reminded of this truth. But did you know that God's house is the same? You know, what God records in the scriptures highlights certain aspects of things that God wants to draw our attention to. As a matter of fact, there there are a great many moments throughout human history that are not recorded in the scriptures. The ones that are recorded hold special significance to God. There's something that God is drawing our attention to. Something he wants to reveal about himself and his work through the things that are preserved there. And today, we are going to consider a couple of the pictures that hang in God's house. We're going to consider the tabernacle and the Jewish holiday called the Day of Atonement. Now, each of these components of the worship system contained in the Old Testament was not just God wasting time or just making up burdensome tasks for humans to do so that he can occupy their time. They are laden with meaning. And ultimately, they were used by God to portray something to Israel and to the world that would help them to recognize the work of redemption in Christ Jesus. In essence... The history, the rituals, the laws that were ordained by God functioned like a prophetic parable for what would come through Christ. They instructed the worshiper how to live in relationship to one another and to God. That is the purpose of all of these scriptures contained in the Old Testament. And so that's the title of our message today, A Visible prophetic parable. Our outline is fairly simple. I'll give it to you. It's three steps, which is a total surprise and shocker, I'm sure, to all of you. In verses one through five, anticipating God's presence. Anticipating God's presence, verses one through five. It's a visible prophetic parable, anticipating God's presence, verses one through five. In verses six through seven, anticipating God's provision, In verses 6 and 7, anticipating God's provision. And then verses 8 and 10, or 8 through 10, anticipating God's purpose. Anticipating God's purpose. So it is a visible prophetic parable, anticipating God's presence, God's provision, and God's purpose. Now, in the previous chapter, to give you a little context here, the author of Hebrews has explained to his audience and to us that Jesus, in his high priestly role is also the mediator of a better covenant. And he makes the point that if the old covenant had been God's only plan, he would have never promised to make a new covenant. Take note in the previous chapter of verses 6 through 8, where the author writes. He says, But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant that he mediates is better since it's enacted on better promises. For if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have, been no, would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant 
with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. So he begins this quote of the the book of Jeremiah where Jeremiah details God's promise to make a new covenant with his people. And this covenant would be superior because rather than writing his laws on tables of stone, God would write his laws upon their hearts. It would be better as a covenant because the instruction would not just be outside of people, something that they learn and adhere to, but it would become something that gets worked into the fibers of their being. They begin to live out of because God had written it on their hearts. And it's better because it would be a covenant where he will be merciful towards their iniquities and remember their sins no more. Then the author of Hebrews finishes this thought by making this incredible statement from verse 13. He says, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete is growing old and ready to vanish away. To understand the importance of this, we have to understand how Hebrews thought about sin. We have to understand how the thoughts of chapter 8 are connected to the thoughts in chapter 9. And we'll need to understand the importance of the rituals that were contained in the law, and more specifically, how it is that sin was dealt with under the old covenant. Because when God makes this promise that there is a new covenant on the horizon, what he's saying is that the old covenant in some way is inferior and it needs to be replaced by something superior. It is picturing for us something and anticipating for us something that is coming in the new. And so we're going to have to do a little bit of work. Now I just want to throw out this disclaimer just a little bit. We're going to be a little heavy on the technical details today. And I know that when that happens, there is a tendency for all of us, myself included, to maybe just tune out a little because it, you know, it's talking about furniture and all these things and it'll seem a little bit disconnected from everyday life. But I promise you, I promise you, if you can maintain your focus and pay attention, it will yield incredible fruit in your understanding of the scriptures today. So bear with me as we kind of walk through this and we, we talk about the furniture and the tabernacle, we talk about the Day of Atonement. Now, uh, according to the writings of Moses, the, the chief barrier between man and God, what keeps them separated and relationally broken is sin. Now, God did not create sin, but he created a world in which sin was indeed possible. And the Bible And when the Bible opens, it tells the story of a loving and benevolent creator who made everything that exists. He sits as a king over his creation. And as the crown jewel of his creation, he made mankind and imparted to man what the Bible simply calls his image. Then, unique from any other created thing, he also imparted his life-giving breath into mankind, very different from all the other things that he'd created. He imparts something of himself, infuses that into mankind. And infused with his image and animated by the life of God, he prepared a place for man on the earth and gave them a responsibility to care for one another and to care for his creation. They were to live in partnership with him in such a way that his will was being done and expressed on earth in the same way that it is in heaven. They had access to a tree called the tree of life, a tree whose fruit would cause them to live eternally in partnership with him. And rather than enjoying this incredible privilege of sharing his rule on the earth, the first humans chose to rebel. They sought to become like God instead of living in dependence on God and with God. So God had told them that in the day that they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they would die. And they disobeyed. After eating from the tree, Adam and Eve were now infused with the knowledge of good and evil by virtue of their choice. 
Where they had only known the goodness of God before, now they knew evil. And it was something that was infused into them in the act of eating. The moment they did this, their eyes were opened. They saw themselves as naked. They felt shame. They began to hide. Where they had enjoyed the presence of God, they looked forward to being with God, lived in partnership with God. Now they feared his presence. They sensed the immediate gap between them and their maker. And so in love, God came to them as was his custom in the cool of the day, and he he drew a confession from both of them. He punished the serpent who had enticed them to rebel, and, and ultimately he cast them away from the garden of Eden, from the place of his presence and his, his fellowship, and away from the tree of life. He did this by pushing them east of Eden and placing two cherubim with flaming swords at the entrance of the Garden of Eden. And he sent them out eastward. Now, because God is gracious, though, because of his gracious heart, he showed them what it would take to cover their nakedness. And for the first time in all of creation, a death took place, not the death of Adam and Eve, but it was the death of an animal on their behalf. And this death occurred at the hands of God. He sacrificed an animal to cover the nakedness of Adam and Eve. And this would be the pattern that was handed down to future generations. It was apparently taught to Cain and Abel, you remember their story, how they both brought sacrifices to God, but Cain's sacrifice was rejected because it was not in the way that God had shown his parents. He gave of the fruit of the ground, whereas his brother brought of the flock, of the best of the flock. It was an offering, the innocent for the guilty. And Cain was angry that his offering was rejected, but God told Cain, look, if you do well, won't you be accepted? If you just do what I've showed you to do, won't you be accepted? Now this pattern of sacrifice is a repeated theme that come, when it comes to drawing close to God in the scriptures. It's, it signified some important realities. One reality was that the guilt of sin does not just disappear. It can't just be magically removed or taken away. The justice of God demands that sin be atoned for. It must be paid for because of the holiness of God. It demands that things be made right and that justice for the wrong be accomplished. And so the animal then that is sacrifice, acts as a substitute, receiving in itself the punishment for the sin, the innocent offered for in the place of the guilty. The second reality that is important is that sin is a life and death issue. It is deadly serious. So whenever you see some serious promise being made in the Old Testament, something called a covenant in the scriptures, you often see an animal being sacrificed to illustrate the deadly seriousness of the oath that is being made when that covenant is being made. And so, whenever you see people drawing near to God in worship, you also see the death of an animal involved as a substitute for the sinfulness of mankind and to demonstrate the seriousness of the offense before God as they approach the holiness of God. Now, I have often wanted to bring a live lamb into the sanctuary. Maybe let your kids and your grandkids pet it. They could give it a little name, lamb chop, fluffy, whatever they choose. We could talk about how beautiful the lamb is. And then during the service, take out a knife, jam it into the neck of the animal, and then let's all think about the seriousness of sin. 
would be a wonderful illustration, but I'm afraid that our poor Western sensitivities could not deal with it because we're so far removed from that life. Our, our bacon comes to us wrapped in plastic. And so we're out of touch with these realities. But man, if you were a part of this worship system, you saw it firsthand. Sin is serious, it's deadly, and it has major, major consequences. That's the reality. Now, by the time you get to the story of Exodus and Israel's departure from Egypt, sacrifice was codified into the prescribed worship given to Moses by God. Remember when he delivered Israel from slavery in Egypt, it would be a Passover lamb that spared his people the same judgment as the Egyptians. And again in Exodus 20, when God gave the Israelites the Ten Commandments, he also gave them a command about sacrificing animals for worship. And and he, he anticipated that as they traveled through the desert, they would need to make sacrifices. Until they had built the the brazen altar, they would need to offer sacrifices on altars of earth. And so he says in Exodus chapter 20, verses 23 to 24, you shall make You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourself gods of gold. An altar of earth you shall make for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. So God knew that this would be the continual pattern for his people. God prescribed it. For his people. After that, after the giving of the law, God gave them also civil laws to govern them as his people on how to live in relationship with one another and with him. Moses wrote down all of the civil laws in a book and he built an altar to the Lord at the foot of Mount Sinai. And once again, animals were slain and offered to God on behalf of the people. Moses then took the blood of the animals that were sacrificed, he sprinkled it upon the altar, and then he read the terms of the covenant that they had just received from God to the people, and they heard the the requirements for a relationship with God. And they responded by saying, all that the Lord has said, we will do. And he took the blood of the covenant the blood that had been sprinkled on the altar, and he sprinkled it upon the people, showing that they they were now bound in a life and death relationship with God. They are now bound in a life and death relationship with God. And so as we dive into Hebrews 9, you have to understand that the background of this is that bloodshed and animal sacrifice, it's the way that you deal with sin, but it is also the means by which you draw near to God. You cannot get to God without dealing with the sin that is a barrier between the two of you. And so... The construction of the sacrificial system and of the tabernacle acts as a visible prophetic parable for the people of God. Let's dive into Hebrews chapter 9 and begin to break this apart a little bit. Verses 1 through 5, now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. That is a a contrast in that statement between a heavenly place of holiness. This is a place where the abode of God and the abode of man overlap in the temple and where God's space and man's space are shared in a sacred space. Verse 2, for a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of presence. It is called the holy place. And behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was the golden urn, holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tables of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat 
Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. So here we have a description of the tabernacle, the worship house first given to Israel by God at Mount Sinai. Now God gave, a, God gave very precise instructions to Israel about constructing this tent for worship, this tent that was called the tabernacle. Those instructions are found in Exodus chapter 25 to 30. God drew Moses up to the top of Mount Sinai and gave him and showed him heavenly realities that were to be reflected in the construction of this tent. They were to be mimicked in the patterns of the tabernacle. Matter of fact, the author of Hebrews in the previous chapter, in chapter 8, verse 2, he makes this point when he says this, that the high priest is a minister in the holy places, that Jesus as the high priest is a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up and not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Verse 5, but they, they serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect a tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you in the mountain. So Moses saw things. God instructed him how to build a, an image, a mimicry of what he had seen on the mountain in the presence of of God. So each of the items in the tabernacle then are symbols. The tabernacle itself was symbolic of the barriers that created separateness from the presence of a holy God. It was a sort of three-tiered system. The first tier consisted of the outer courts of the tabernacle, that fenced-in area that you see to the outside. Then There was the tent itself, the tabernacle itself, often referred to as the tent of meeting. Now the courtyard was distinct in that it it was exposed to the elements. If you were in the courtyard, you were exposed to the elements, and it was the outside dwelling place, if you will. And inside of the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, was the inside dwelling place, the secret place, the place where God dwelt, where he would come and meet with his people. The tent of meeting was separated from the elements of the external world and was divided into two sections, the holy place and the most holy place, oftentimes called the holy of holies. And the reason for that is that in Hebrew, there, there, there aren't superlatives. There aren't ways to, to say something is necessarily greater. And so one of the ways that you express that is by saying it twice. So holy, holy, right? And, and that's the idea. The most holy place is the holiest of holies. It is the holy, holy place. Now, the tabernacle was a tent about 45 feet long. It was 15 feet wide and 15 feet high, divided into two rooms. The larger room, which is the first part, was 15 feet by 30. Uh, it, it was called the holy place. And behind this curtain that hung in between, this thing called the veil, was a, a smaller room that was 15 feet by 15 feet. And that was the holiest of all, the holy of holies. Now, in the holy place, that first room, were three key items of furniture. The table of showbread, the menorah or the lampstand, and the altar of incense. Now, the lampstand. The lampstand in the tabernacle was one stand that had seven lamps upon it. It it consisted of a, a middle stem that had six branches that came off the middle. It was of unspecified size, and it was made of pure gold that had been beaten into the shape that it was in. And it was the source of the only light in the holy place. The only source of light came from this lamp that burned in the tabernacle. And each of those little, you'll see little knobs on the branches. Each of those are symbolic. They have little, they're like little pieces of fruit sometimes or cups uh, sometimes. But you could fill this thing with oil and put wicks down inside of it. And each of the lamps 
were to be burning perpetually in the house of God. A way of God saying, I'll, I'll leave the light on for you. You can come in and, and be with me. I'm here all the time, right? Then there was the table of showbread. Now, the table of showbread, this sat in the first part of uh, the holy place. It was made of acacia wood, and then was, it was covered with gold. It was three foot long, foot and a half wide, and two to three feet high. Uh, it held 12 loaves of bread, each representing God's fellowship with the 12 tribes of Israel, according to Exodus 25, verses 23 to 30. It also had some golden dishes, some plates for incense, and some jars and bowls that were used for wine that was uh, used in drink offerings. And it was sort of symbolic of the fellowship and the presence that God shared among his people. Uh, The idea of God being with his people sort of inviting you for a meal. It was God in the presence of his people and God their miraculous provider because he, of course, provides 12 loaves, a loaf for each of the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, the 12 loaves were to be replaced each week by the priests. And it was through a meal, or it was as though a meal was being staged where as you came into the house of God, God was inviting you to sup with him and be reminded he's the ultimate provider. He's the one who cares for his people. The third item of furniture was the golden altar of incense. This was also made of acacia wood. It was covered with gold. It was a foot and a half square and three feet high. And it stood before the veil, before the Holy of Holies, and was used to burn incense that was intended to make the prayers offered there sort of smell sweet. So it was like this. If you went in, you burned incense on the altar, the the smoke of the incense would go up, it would fill up the sanctuary. And the idea was that as prayers are uttered in that place, the prayers mix with the incense and it becomes a sweet smelling fragrance and God would receive the prayers, be pleased by the fragrance of them, if you will, and that he would be honored to then respond to those prayers. So that was the altar of incense. Then there was the veil separating the holy place from the most holy place. It was a curtain. Uh, It it was sewn with decorations of cherubim and a mixture of, of scarlet and purple and blue linen. The cherubim that were sewn into that decorated the curtain that is called the veil Uh, which was at the front of the Holy of Holies, separating the holy place from the holiest of holies, those cherubim acted as symbols for the cherubim placed at the entrance of the Garden of Eden. It was the barrier between the presence of God and humanity, if you will. And inside of the holiest of holies were all these decorations of fruit trees that mimicked the Garden of Eden. Now also beyond the veil in the holiest of holies is the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant. Beyond that curtain in the most holy place was placed the Ark of the Covenant. It was this golden box made out of acacia wood again. It had, two, it had rings on the side of it and two wooden staves that were covered in gold that enabled the Ark to be carried without touching it. It was essentially a chest that was made of acacia wood and then covered with gold on the inside and on the outside. It was three and three quarters feet long, two and a quarter feet wide, two and a quarter feet high. Now, the Ark of the Covenant represented the relationship that God had with Israel. A relationship where he would be their God in their midst and they would be his people. And through this relationship, God elected or chose Israel in order to make them a light unto the Gentiles, to the nations around them. God wanted Israel to be a witness to how to have relationship with him 
through the way that they lived. God is using the nation of Israel itself for the purpose of pointing the world around them to something eternal, the way back to God. Now inside of the ark were the golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Now the manna reminded Israel of God's provision because remember, God provided for them miraculously in the desert. But it was also not just a reminder of God's provision, but also their ungratefulness. Because do you remember how they got the manna? They started out complaining and saying, you know, we had it better back in Egypt, back when there were garlic and leeks and onions that we could eat. Man, it was nice back there. We really loved that slave life. And God was like, okay, I'm going I'm to provide for you, but you're really ungrateful. And so he, he gave them manna, and they collected some, put it in a jar, and that was in the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, not only that, but there was uh, the tables. Now, who remembers what happened to the first tablets of stone that God gave to Moses? Remember what happened? He came down, found them worshiping a golden calf, and they were shattered, broken all at once. The first guy to break all Ten Commandments in one shot. So Moses had to carve out another set. And that set was then placed inside of the Ark of the Covenant, a reminder of the goodness of God, the rule of God, and the failure of Israel once again. Then there was Aaron's rod that budded. Now Aaron's rod that budded, this came from a, a time in, Israel, or in Israel's history where uh, they were rebelling against the leadership of God. The, they said, hey, you can't be the only one to go in and see the presence of God, Aaron. That's, that's, that's not okay. Anybody can do it. Right. And God said, okay, let's, let's put out a little test. All those of you who are complaining, you lay out your rods. Aaron, you lay down your rod. And whichever rod grows miraculously in the middle of the night, that's the person that, I'm cho- uh, that I've chosen. And so Aaron's rod budded. And it was put in the Ark of the Covenant as a testimony both of God's leadership and of Israel's failure. They didn't want him to lead. They didn't like his provision for them. They were constantly bucking the system, constantly wrestling with God. Now, the tablets reminded them of their failure to uphold the law. The manna reminded them of their grumbling and the rod that budded reminded them of their rebellion against God's leadership. But on top of the box was a lid. It was a lid that God called the mercy seat. And the lid for this golden box had two golden cherubim facing one another, each with their wings spread forward to to sort of guard the place that symbolized the presence of God. Now the blood of a sacrifice was sprinkled upon this lid for the forgiveness of Israel's sin on the Day of Atonement. And it was as though when God looked down onto the ark and he saw the symbols of Israel's sin, their rebellion against his authority, their complaining about his provision, their their, their lack of following his law, it was as though as he looked down on the mercy seat, he had to view their sin through the lens of the atoning sacrifice. In that place, God would dispense and give to his people mercy. He saw the symbols of Israel's sin and rebellion and failure, but when the blood of the sacrifice was applied to the mercy seat, the blood of the sacrifice covered his sight of the sin of Israel. Now this only took place once a year. Now all of this was rich in symbolism, demonstrating what was necessary to maintain a covenant with a holy God. It it provided a picture of the way to God for sinful people. But I I want you to think for me, or think with me for just a moment about the path to get to God, the experience of the worshiper under the sacrificial system. So ultimately what would happen because of the way the tabernacle was laid out, you had to approach from the east. Does that ring a bell? Remember Adam and Eve, they were, they were, caused to leave the Garden of Eden to the east. 
approaching from the east, headed west back towards this ornamental tent that, that has all kinds of symbols of the presence of God and, and, and the way back to the garden. This is the way to get to God. That's what's being symbolized. And so approaching from the east, the worshiper is headed back to the image of the garden, the place where the relationship with God was originally broken. But before you can get there, sin has to be dealt with. Stand between you and the presence of God. The very first item of furniture in the courtyard is the altar, and you have to deal with your sin. The sin is dealt with at the altar. The innocent has to suffer in your place. And this is as far as you are allowed to go if you're just an Israelite. That's as close as you can get to the presence of God. But someone else could go on your behalf. That, that is a priest. A priest could go on your behalf. And so the priest, after making sacrifice for your sins, he would then wash his hands and his feet in the laver, and then he could go in and offer prayers on your behalf and go to the place, the table, where fellowship happened between uh, God and his people. He could sit in the light of God's presence in the holy place on your behalf. He would represent you there. After the sacrifice and washing, he entered in, he would often burn incense and offer prayers, but even then, that was as far as he could go. He could never pass the veil into the actual presence of God before the mercy seat, the Ark of the Covenant. Only if he was the high priest could he do that, and only on one day out of the year. And so here's the deal. The experience of the worshiper, the one who intends to draw near to God, the experience of the worshiper was always one of unfulfilled desires. That was the daily, weekly, and monthly experience. Imagine that. Imagine coming here to worship, and you're like, I just want to draw near to God. I just want to draw near to God. And we say, okay, you get to stand in the parking lot. But you... You can send in your pastor for you. you can, well, I really want to draw near to God, but I, I guess the pastor can go on my behalf. And so he, he comes in, he go, they stop him at the lobby, and they go, hey, this is as far as you get to go. This is it. You can get within 100 feet of God, but that's about it. You see how frustrating that would be? You see the disappointment, the, the longing that it created the way to get to God was a constant place of frustration. It was not an experience of fulfilled desires, but of unfulfilled desires. No one was able to stand in God's presence on your behalf. You were never able to come before God yourself. The way to God was always blocked. But think with me for a moment about the rich language that surrounded Jesus in the Gospels. Jesus, do you remember? Do you remember he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father it's except by me. Now early Christians picked up on this idea of Jesus being the way to God. Matter of fact, that was the first name that they gave themselves. Like, what is this movement that we're all a part of, this thing that is happening by the Spirit of God? What is this thing that is going on? And they said, what, what should we call ourselves? We are the way, the people of the way. I love that. Remember Jesus said, I am the door. He's the door by which all who come to God must enter. He is the sacrifice offered in our place. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the one in whom, if we come to him, out of our innermost being will flow torrents of living water. He is the place where we are washed and cleansed. He said, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. Hebrews tells us he is the one who intercedes on our behalf continually before the presence of God. It is through his death that the veil is torn. It is through his blood that when God looks down from the mercy seat, he sees our sin and our failure through what Christ has done 
on our behalf. All of the pieces of the tabernacle point us to the one who is the way back to God. And the tabernacle itself anticipated a time when the way back to God was made open. And and here's the deal. When Jesus gave his life, how did God respond? He responded by tearing down the curtain and opening the way back to God. It anticipated, anticipated all that God would do through Christ. Isn't that a beautiful picture? Isn't that incredible to think about that? For thousands of years, you're going through these rituals. You're thinking about, you know, what is the meaning of all this? How come I can never get close to God? How come I'm always hindered from coming to God? And God is saying, wait, wait, wait. There's one who's coming. There's one who's coming. He's going to be the one. And then the way to God will be made plain. The house will be opened. You will have access. Wait for the one who's coming. So, it anticipated, the tabernacle anticipated all that God wished to do. In verses 6 through 7, God, it also anticipated, or the, the old covenant anticipated God's provision. Now, verses 6 and 7 deal with the Day of Atonement. Let me read it to you. These preparations, okay, we have the, 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 the uh, items in the tabernacle, These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes and and he but once a year and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. Now, the priesthood was divided into 24 courses or families. 16 of them were Zedekites, They were from the family of Zadok. Eight were of Ithamar. Each group was responsible for one week of service in the temple at a time. Uh, So in a given year, they would serve a total of two weeks, as well as during the times of the festivals. Now, the rest of the year, they ministered throughout the land in the areas in which they lived. They weren't allowed to possess or own any land themselves, and so they, they ministered on behalf of God throughout Israel. In those days, their duties included making sacrifices, performing the rituals of the sanctuary, burning incense, along with intercessory prayers in the holy place, and, and teaching the people the laws and the rituals. Now, every day, the priests went about the business of offering worship and sacrifices to God, and it was exhausting work, starting with dealing with their own. Sacrifice to cover their own sins. That's how they would start the day. And then you needed to deal with the sacrifices to cover anyone who brought an offering to the Lord. You started by bathing and, and you ended the day. You started the day with bathing before the sun came up and you ended the day just covered in blood and guts and smoke. Stinking to high heaven of the work that you've been doing throughout the day. You heard the worst in people. As you were there making sacrifice and people confessed their sin, you, you got to see it all. You got to see the grossest aspects of the people who call themselves the people of God. That's the reality of it. You heard the worst in people, you dealt with the darkest parts of humanity, and this was your daily experience as a priest. But even then, you never got to experience the fulfillment of unfettered access to God. The only thing close to that experience, the only close, the thing close enough to, to unfettered access to God was on the Day of Atonement, which is talked about here in verses 6 and 7. Now, on the Day of Atonement, which is found in Leviticus 16, uh, also in Leviticus uh, 23, it's a day that is known uh, presently as the Day of Yom Kippur, It was the most solemn holy day of the Israelites' feasts and festivals, Yom Kippur being the Hebrew for Day of Atonement. Uh, It occurred once a year on the 10th of Tishri, which is the seventh month of the Hebrew calendar. It was a day of fasting and grieving the moral pollution of the people. And it it wasn't only a day to provide... Uh, forgiveness for the people, but it was also a day to purge and to cleanse, to, to sanctify once again the house 
of God, the dwelling place of God in the tabernacle and later in the temple. It was kind of like this. It was almost as though throughout the entirety of the year, as, as people sinned uh, and they brought their sin to, to the temple for sacrifice, what they experienced was you know, blood and guts and smoke and grime building up on everything. And there was sort of the evidence, if you will, of the sins of the people all the way around. And sort of morally, spiritually, it was like the stunk just sort of hang, hanged there. It hung there, Right? And so once a year, there was sort of a house cleaning project where you would spiritually, morally re-sanctify all of the tabernacle. And the Day of Atonement functioned like that. It was a reset. Now, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would wake up before dawn. He would bathe himself entirely. Instead of putting on his, his high priestly garments and the chest plates, he dressed himself in clean linen. The animals for sacrifice would be selected, a bull for uh, a sin sacrifice for himself and for his family, a ram for a burnt offering at the end of the day unto the Lord, and then two goats. Uh, Lots were cast over the goats to determine which one would be killed in the sacrifice and which one would carry the sins of the people and be released into the desert The one released was the one that is often called the scapegoat. If you've ever heard that word, that's where that comes from. The scapegoat was identified after he was selected by casting lots by a red cord that was tied around its head to mark it as the sin-bearing scapegoat, the one that was enabled to live and was delivered over to the desert. Then he would sacrifice the bull as a sin offering for himself and for his family. So I, I don't know about you, but I went, to, uh, I went on a mission trip one time to, to Vanuatu, and I, I just never thought about this. I'm in Vanuatu, and we're, we're going to kill what they call a wild bullock, which is like a feral bull that they capture just wandering around in the jungle. And we're going to kill it for this big feast, this thing that we're having, and... Uh, and uh, I, I just never thought about, like, how do you kill an animal that big when you don't have a gun? Never thought about that. And so they're like, hey, come on, you're going to participate in this. And I'm like, okay. So I go, and then there's like 15 of us around this big bull. It's tied to a tree, and it's looking at us <clears throat> sort of wild-eyed, trying to figure out, like, hey, what's going on? And then we just sort of start circling, right? And I'm just kind of following everybody's lead. Everybody's got a bush knife, which are like these little mini samurai swords, they used to cut down the bushes with and so in the middle of that we're circling around this animal all of a sudden a guy steps forward and he goes wham and he hacks the achilles tendon on the cow so now it's it's hobbling on three three legs then somebody else steps forward hacks the one on the front now it's only got two legs and eventually it falls over as soon as it falls over this animal is big it can kill anybody that get, comes in contact with it. You jump on top of this. Everybody jumps on top of this animal and they immediately just start shanking that thing prison style through the ribs and, and kill it that way. And then they cut its throat. Now I'm standing there watching that going, whoa. Uh, my dad was a butcher. I grew up going to, like, on a kill truck with my dad to all these places. I had never seen anything like that. Savage. Now think about this. This is what the high priest has to do for his sin. That's the reality of it. It's a savage thing to behold. So he starts out offering a bull for his own sin and for his family. And uh, then he, he would take incense beyond the veil and he would take coals from the altar and he would burn fine, gra- fine ground incense as he passed through the veil, he would burn that before the Ark of the Covenant. And the idea was that the smoke would go up and it would mask the presence of God on the mercy seat. It would sort of hide him from being able to look at God and perishing as a result of that. 
Then he would leave the sanctuary once again. He would come out. He would grab the bowl full of blood from the bowl for his own sacrifice. There's usually a young man who was stirring it to keep it from coagulating because it needed to be uncoagulated blood to spread on uh, on the Ark of the Covenant. He would go back through the curtain. He would take the blood and he would sprinkle it seven times upon the mercy seat. Then he would back, back out, back through the curtain, come out now for the third time. And he would get then one of the, the goat that was to be offered on behalf of Israel, not the scapegoat, the other one. He would take that one and kill it immediately and put the blood in the same bowl. And the blood of the bull for his sacrifice and the blood of the goat for the sacrifice of Israel is now in that blood. He would bring it back into the veil and he would sprinkle it seven times upon the Ark of the Covenant asking for forgiveness from God. It was a bloody, arduous process. Meanwhile, outside, during the temple period at least, people would stand outside and they would confess their sins in a confession called the vidui. They would beat their chest. They would just beat their chest like this and they would start confessing, we have abused, we have betrayed, we have destroyed and embittered people's lives, we were false to ourselves, we have gossiped about others. And this would go on, I mean, very long prayer, full of confession of sin, all just waiting for that moment where the high priest would emerge, where the sacrifice took. Now, if the high priest died in there, that means they were stuck in their sins for the entire year. When the high priest returned, he placed his hands on the head of the scapegoat and he confessed the sins of Israel over and the wickedness of the Israelites over the scapegoat. The scapegoat then was taken out into the wilderness and turned loose to carry the sins of all of its people, which were forgiven for another year. The priest would then wash himself again, come back and offer the ram as a burnt offering unto the Lord. This was the only time that all the sins of Israel were forgiven all at once. The only time. I mean, think about it. You got a thousand people, just a thousand, trying to make sacrifice for sins for a thousand people. It can't happen in a day. There's one altar. So you lived in the presence of your sin continually. That was just the reality of it. This was the only time that the sins of Israel were ever all at once done away with until somebody had a bad thought, until somebody did something wrong. And then the entire group of people, once again, entered into that time of making atonement for sins through daily sacrifices. Now here's the point. The labor of the temple never stopped. It never satisfied. In fact, it was a reminder of the presence of sin in the people of God. It was a daily reminder. It anticipated a time where the sacrifices would cease and forgiveness would be permanent. Anticipated a time where, where God would bring his provision through Christ. And you can see why in the early days of the church, Acts chapter 6 verse 7 tells us that there were a great many priests who came to faith in Jesus. They saw it. They thought, oh, I, I couldn't help it. Like every time I was called to service after all the labor, I just kept thinking to myself, wouldn't it be great if there was just one sacrifice that would do it all? Wouldn't it be amazing if we could just get rid of all this sin and we just didn't have to do all this? Wouldn't it be great if I didn't come home covered in blood and guts? And when they saw the sacrifice of Jesus, they became believers. This is an incredible reality. And anticipated God's provision. The Day of Atonement anticipated God's provision. And lastly, verses 8 through 10, it anticipated God's purpose. Verse 8, by this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but only deal with food and drink, and various washings and regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. 
Notice this summary statement of the author of Hebrews that, that follows these thoughts about the, the tabernacle and the day of atonement. He says, all of this was designed so that people would anticipate the time of fulfillment, the time of reformation, and anticipated a time when the sacrifices would cease and the people would experience not just being externally cleansed, but internally cleansed, their conscience being purged because a sacrifice was sufficient to not have to sacrifice again. It was so sufficient that you would never have to go back. And this is what Jesus, our high priest, has accomplished. This is what he did. And guys, when you see this, when you bring this picture together, it makes the gospel stand out so clear. Because you'll remember, remember on the night before Jesus was crucified, he gathered with his disciples in the upper room and he said, hey, this, drink this, eat this, the bread, the wine. Remember, this is the blood of the new covenant. This is what Jeremiah was talking about. It, it's happening right now. He left that room after washing the feet of his disciples on the way to the Garden of Gethsemane, he lifts up his intercessory high priestly prayer from John chapter 17. He then makes his way into the Garden of Gethsemane. And just like the structure of the tabernacle, he leaves disciples so far out. And then he takes the three and he, he, he puts the three a little bit closer. And then he himself goes and he begins interceding and talking to the Lord. And, and he says to the Father, let, let, if there be any other way, let this cut pass from before me. And, and the Father obviously says to him this is the way and so he departs he comes back how many times does he come back and check on his disciples you guys remember three times he comes back out remember what's happening as he's praying as he's interceding he's sweating great drops of blood the blood is already on his face when he's arrested he's taken out and, uh, and taken to the court of Caiaphas and eventually he makes his way to Pilate and as he stands before Pilate, people say crucify him and Pilate presents two people, Jesus and Barabbas. One is guilty and suffers, the other who's guilty goes free. Do you see the picture? See how perfectly it all fits together. The father responded to the death of his son as he hung on the cross and said, it is finished into your hands. I commit my spirit. The father responds by tearing down the veil in the temple. The work was done. And the author of Hebrews is saying to his audience, the time of reformation has come. So great is the sacrifice of Jesus that you can even have your conscience cleansed. It's not a reminder of how much of a failure you are. It is a reminder of the graciousness of God and the absolute amazing work of Jesus. What is there even to go back to, he would say to these Hebrew Christians? You're, you're talking about going back into the temple and worshiping. In it. For what reason? For what reason? Jesus did it all. Don't go back. All that Old Testament system anticipated what God would provide through Christ. Question to you, do you believe it? As the band comes back up and close in worship, I want to invite you to think about this. Do you believe it? Do you believe that what Jesus did is enough? Do you believe that where, where the Father sits now, that as he looks at you in your sin and he sees your rebellion and he sees your ungratefulness and he sees all of your failing to keep his commands, do you believe he sees you through the lens of the blood of his son as he looks at you through the mercy seat? Do you believe right now that there is nothing you can do at this moment or ever again that will add to your value before God. Do you believe that? Do you believe that there is nothing you can do to earn his forgiveness and his grace? Until you believe that, you don't really understand how good 
the good news is. You stand here today forgiven because of Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this incredible picture. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this reminder that we are forgiven and loved. That our sin has been dealt with with finality. It's been atoned for. That we've been cleansed with absolute authority. And and, and at this very moment, we can boldly enter into worshiping you, spending time with you. We never have to fear even confessing our sin to you because the sin has already been paid for. It's so that we can purge our own conscience by appropriating what you've accomplished on the cross. Let the atoning work of your son, let the one who tabernacled among us and became the lamb of God who took away the sins of the world, let it once again refresh our hearts and minds that we might come to you boldly. In Jesus' name, amen.